So, point of pastoral privilege, if I could. Jonathan asked me to preach on something in particular, and so I will. But you all just formed a search committee. And this can be an interesting time in a church's life. It can be a time where the wheels come off in a massive way, where the factions come out, the agendas develop, the, the fight starts. But I just want to tell you as a point of personal experience, I worked at a church as an assistant pastor as we went through this, and it doesn't have to be that way. It can be one of the most amazing times in a church's life that you've ever seen. And we were privileged just by God's grace, because he was protecting the idiots. But just by God's grace, we were privileged to see a church that, that grew. And I don't just mean numerically, we did grow numerically, but a church that deepened, a church that ripened, a church that became much more what God would have had us be. So just a point of, of encouragement to you in two ways. One, encouragement, this could go really well. This doesn't have to go badly. Two, a point of encouragement to you, in the other sense of the word, let me encourage you. This will go really well if you are seeking the Lord's face in it. This will go really well if you lean in, not out. It's very easy at this point to say, well, let me take the wait and see approach. Let me see what they come back with. Let me see if I like this guy. But to get one foot that starts to step out of your church. Let me encourage you to do the exact opposite that this is precisely the time where you can lean into your church in a way that will be remarkable in your own life spiritually and will be remarkable in what God will do with you. And I've just, again, by grace, by dumb, dumb idiots with the Lord protecting them, got to live through a case where this worked really well. So this can go well. And certainly we pray that it would go well for you guys. So I was um, assistant pastor at McLean Presbyterian Church, McLean, Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C., as Jonathan said, I was responsible for a bunch of things. I was responsible for church planting, I was responsible for pastoral care, and I was responsible for faith and work ministries. And so I have had to spend a lot of time grappling with people about, why does God have me in this job? Or, why is it that God seems to not be willing to let me find a job? What does it mean for me to live my life in the light of my faith Monday to Saturday? What does it mean for Monday to Saturday to connect to Sunday? And so Jonathan asked me to, to speak about that, and we will. We're going to talk about Jeremiah 29. So <clears throat> if you brought a Bible, please open it, Jeremiah 29. We're going to look at verses 1 to 14, and let me explain the situation in which Jeremiah 29 occurs. In about 1000 B.C., Israel had really become into its own as a nation. That didn't last long. By 70 years after that, Israel had split. God's people as a country had split into two different kingdoms, a northern kingdom called Israel, a southern kingdom called Judah, and they often fought on each other. They did all sorts of nice things like go up and you know, destroy each other's temples and wreck each other's capital and all sorts of friendly neighborly things. Um, so this is, by the way, not the way God likes his people to be with each other, Right? Well, it went downhill rapidly. By 200 years later, the Assyrian Empire, one of the big bad boys of the ancient world, came in and absolutely wrecked and destroyed the northern of those kingdoms called Israel. 
By a hundred years after that, a new empire on the scene, the Babylonian Empire, came in and it was in the process of wrecking and destroying and taking over the southern of those kingdoms called Judah. And it did it in three stages. And so Jeremiah is writing his letter in the midst of that time. Stage one or stage two, we're not exactly sure it happened, where Babylonia came in, conquered the country, and would deport a huge portion, particularly of the elite, take them back to the land of Babylon for what can only be described as a re-education campaign. Brainwash them, make them into good little Babylonian citizens. At some point in this process, while some of the Jews are already now living in Babylon, going through this, Jeremiah, the prophet back in Judah, writes a letter to them. And what we're looking at today is the beginning of the letter he writes to those people. So if you'll read with me, in Jeremiah 29, I'll read the first 14 verses. Now this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king of Babylon, had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the artisans had gone from exile into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elash, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, had sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name, declares the Lord. I have not sent them. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is the word of our Lord. So let's pray, please. God, our Father, we have no right to expect you to speak to us, yet you have been kind and gracious to give us your word. We have no right to expect you to save us. You, you have been kind and gracious and sent our Lord Jesus to die for us. We have no right to expect you to even speak through these words today, but Holy Spirit, you have chosen to make yourself known in the preaching of your word. So we come before you and pray and even beg that you would do great things 
Holy Spirit, through illumining our minds and opening our hearts, that we may hear the truth in the word, that we may see Jesus more clearly. We may love him more dearly. We pray you would do that today, Lord. I certainly pray for the preacher who needs it more than any. Come and be with us as we study together and as we learn and as we look at your word. We pray it in Jesus' wonderful and holy name. Amen. So in... 1974, a, an eminent oral historian of the U.S. and actually a radio personality, remember those? A guy named Studs Terkel did a documentary called Working where he went and asked people throughout the country, just tell me about your job. One, a lady named Nora Watson said this, jobs are not big enough for people. It's not just the assembly line worker whose job is too small for his spirit, you know. A job like mine, if you really put your spirit into it, you would sabotage immediately. You don't dare. So you absent your spirit from it. My mind has been so divorced from my job, except as a source of income, it's really absurd. Now she said that back in 1974, but I dare say that's exactly where most of us are still today. How do you find meaning in the mundane? especially when it seems like that mundane has so little relationship to your faith, to the core of who you are? How do you find meaning in a Monday to Friday or Saturday when you really don't feel like it connects much to what you do here on Sunday? Well, the thesis that I advance to you that Jeremiah 29 gives us is that there is meaning in the mundane because this is God's idea. There's meaning in the mundane because this is God's idea. And if that's true, it gives great power to what you do every day in work, what you do every day in raising children, what you do every day in living the life that God has given us. That these, in fact, are not things that are divorced from our faith, but they are, in fact, the very outworking of our faith that God would give us. So we'll try to look at that under three headings. We're going to look at the fact that God has placed us here, We're going to look at the fact that someday God will take us home. Bless you. And we're going to look at the place that God has work for us right now. So that God has put us here, God will take us home, and God has work for us right now. Let's try to look at those in order. First, God has put us here. He has put you here. He has put me here. What what does that mean? Well, think about these poor Israelite exiles in Babylon for a second. This is the first amazing thing about this passage, that God tells them that he put them there. Now, it sure seems like Nebuchadnezzar did it, doesn't it? He was the king of Babylon. He was the one who led the army. He was the one who took over Judah. He was the one who decided to have this policy of deporting people. He was the one who gave the order. He is the one who rules where they are. In fact, verse 1 even says what? That Nebuchadnezzar carried them into exile. Sure seems like his work, not God's, right? But look at verse 4. Verse 4, where God says, the letter from the Lord Almighty to the ones that I carried into exile in Babylon. He says it again in verse 7, the ones that I carried into exile. So who is it? Is this Nebuchadnezzar's idea or is this God's idea? And the answer is yes. Now Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know this, right? Nebuchadnezzar's pretty sure he had this plan. I'm the one who gave the orders. I'm the one who took over. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But the scriptures tell us that behind even the work of the greatest king of all time at the time he was king, 
God is fully and completely in control. Sure, Nebuchadnezzar thought he did it, but ultimately God did it. It is God who knew this. It is God who planned it. It is God who did it. In fact, in their case, he did it as judgment on them for their sins from hundreds of years worth of neglecting the poor, of not caring about the worship of the Lord, of not caring about justice, of not caring about mercy, of not caring about holiness. God says to the ones that I carried into exile, now that is a bitter theological pill to swallow if you're one of these exiles. Think about it. Why are they in exile? They are there because they were conquered on the battlefield, because their country was overrun by an invading army. They had seen and felt ancient warfare. And we've come up with new and creative ways to kill people in the past hundred years, but people have always been good about being cruel. They had seen their men, their sons, their fathers, their brothers impaled on stakes and left out into the sun to die. They had seen and been raped. They had seen their babies ripped out of their arms and smashed into the ground. They had been through horror. They knew what this was. Now, I'm reminded of Jill asked, my wife Jill asked her uncle, who'd been a pilot in Vietnam, are you going to go see Saving Private Ryan? And he just said, no. I know what war's like. I don't need anybody to tell me. Even beyond that, look at verse 1. This is the letter to the surviving elders among the exiles. Why, why that word? Why the surviving elders? Because these are the ones that didn't die on the march. It's a 900-mile march through the ancient Middle Eastern heat from Judah to Babylon, being forced on a death march by a bunch of soldiers who really probably would rather not have to take you back there, and so really don't care whether you make it that much or not. It's to the surviving elders because they had watched their friends and their fellow elders drop dead on the walk. And now they're living in Babylon, and let me tell you a little bit what that would have been like. They're living in the middle of a hypersexualized culture that is quite happy for there to be lots and lots of gods, but is quite unhappy to be tolerant of the idea that there might be only one God. They are a hated minority, persecuted, effectively slaves, spat on, looked down on, mocked for their faith. Does that also start to sound a little bit like what the American culture is becoming? A hypersexualized culture that is quite happy to look at a lot of gods and quite happy to tolerate them all as long as you dare not say there's only one. A somewhat despised minority, if you really hold to a good, solid, biblical view of what Christianity is, you can see this heading. And you don't have to go down to Midtown to see it. You can see it heading right around here. Yet God says, I put you here. God who is in control of everything, God who makes no mistakes, God who has no power that can oppose him, says you are not here by accident, you are not here by mistake, you are not by here by your work, you are here ultimately because God is in control of everything and he has placed you here. Now that can be a bitter pill to swallow. For every one of us, because we live in the society that is less and less happy with our faith, that is more and more scornful of what we believe, that is more and more willing to spit at us, TV, in the courtroom, in the government, even down the block. And in some of us, even more particularly, 
Because the place in which God has put us has involved a lot of pain, a lot of trouble, a lot of agony. And God says, I put you here. So first, we are here, as hard as that is to get our minds around, because God planted us. Second big point. God put us here, and someday he will take us home. This is our hope. The hope is not here. The hope is that someday we look forward to what he will do, how he will take us back. This was true for these Jews in exile. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, he says, This is what the Lord says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. This place, Jeremiah is writing from Jerusalem. So God says, I will take you home. This is not permanent. This is not it. He says, if you follow on verses 11 through 14, When you repent in the midst of your exile, I will have mercy on you. I do intend great plans for you. I do intend to bring you back. Again, listen, verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So Israel could look forward to the fact that God would take them home. That was their hope. Now that's exactly our hope too that God will bring us home. We look forward to the fact that though we live in this world now, there will be a time when we will be home, and home means being with our Lord Jesus. And it means a place where there is no more death, where there is no more cancer, where there is no more hate, there is no more injustice, there is no more hunger, there is no more suffering. The Bible describes it for us. Flip over into Revelation chapter 21. Here's the description of our home. Their home was Jerusalem, and God would bring them back someday. The Bible calls our home the New Jerusalem. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And don't miss something. Where is this new Jerusalem physically? It is on earth. The Christian hope, our hope is not a hope of flying up to heaven forever. Our hope is that God will come down to earth and we will live here forever in our resurrected bodies. A stubbornly physical, stubbornly real hope. God never gave up on this idea from the Garden of Eden that he would walk with men and women. He never gave up on this idea that he would have men and women in his image who would be his image to the world, who would rule the world for him. He never gave up on any of it. Now, we fouled it up royally with sin. So he came and did it as a man in the person of our Lord Jesus. And we will go home to be with him. That is our hope. Our hope is not right now. As good as your life may be, or as bad as your life may be, your hope is not right now. 
spent, again, the most of the last 10 years pastoring in McLean, Virginia, just outside D.C. Um, it's the home of a certain little government agency that doesn't like you to um, talk about them very much. We used to call it Christians in Action. Um, use the first, three letter, first letter of each of the three words if you're having trouble. You'll catch on. So I'm talking to one of our members who's assigned there. And he says one of the things that amazed him is that the place was full of Mormons. To the point where finally he said, he asked one of his friends, what's going on here? Why are you guys so invested in the agency? It was remarkable what the guy said to him. He said, because I'm a Mormon. And our theology says that America is the promised land. So this is it. So I'm ready to fight for it. Now my goodness, I hope you know better. I love America. I would rather live in this country than pretty much any other one on the face of the earth. I'm completely patriotic. But we don't live in hope of just more of this for eternity. That's an eternal life you're not aiming at. We live in hope that we will go home to the new Jerusalem to be with God. And it will be on earth. It will be here. You're in the right place geographically. It's just that we're not in the right place spiritually yet. We're not in what the earth will be when Jesus comes back. But we look forward not to more of this. We look forward to going home. That is our hope. But that actually leads to the third point. God has work for us to do right here and right now. Now look, if you long to go home, it's a really powerful feeling, isn't it? I still remember the first time I went to summer camp as a little tyke. And homesickness is strong. It takes away all the joy. It takes away all the motivation. It takes away any desire. I mean, it was camp. I should have had a great time. And it was awful. Because I wanted to go home. Now the thing is, this is the thing about humans. If we really want something badly, we can usually find somebody to tell us what we want to hear. And so that's what's happening in exile to the Jews. Verses 8 and 9. There are plenty of people coming out, false prophets, God says, who are saying, you're going to go home soon. There's going to be over fast. The exile is not a long-term thing. God's not really that mad. He's not going to leave you there that long. It's over. His wrath is spent. We're going home soon. And God says, it's a lie. Don't believe it. Don't buy it. I have not sent them. And he expands on this later in verses 20 to 23. He says, don't believe the people who are telling you what you want to hear. So don't fall for the person who says, hey, it's almost over. Don't fall for the person who says, we're out of here soon. Don't fall for the person who says, it's done. Particularly, by the way, if they give you a date. <laughs> Instead, God says, verses 5 and 6, settle down, you're going to be here a while. Build houses, plant gardens, eat what they produce, have kids, have grandkids. Settle in for the long haul. You're not going home soon. But there's something far more going on in verses 5 and 6 than just a time marker. Look at them with me. What he really is saying is, live out your purpose. Live out your purpose. Verse 5, what do they do? They do things to grow food, to settle their world. Verse 6, what do they do? They have children. This is part of the very essence of who God has made mankind to be. Flip back to the beginning of your Bible. Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. 
Remember, we are before there is such a thing as sin in the world in Genesis 1. God has just made mankind, men and women, and this is what he says to us after he makes us. God said, let us make men in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, unless you try to get chauvinist about this. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. As we are formed, right out of the gate, God gives us two great purposes as humanity. To multiply, to fill the earth, and to rule, to subdue the earth. And these are part of what we were made to be from the beginning. Now, in exile, God tells them the exact same things. Verse 5, have dominion. Cultivate this earth, make it what it should be. Verse 6, multiply, increase, have children, grow. God's kingdom purposes for you and myself and all of us do not end with sin. They do not end by being in exile. Now here's why this is incredibly important. First Peter 1.11, Peter calls the elect, Christians, exiles, wandering in the world. There is a sense in which, as a believer in Jesus, you live as an exile, right? You are not home. We look to our home, but we are living now in the midst of a world that hates our faith. And so Jeremiah's words do not matter simply to them, they matter to us. And the purposes of God for humanity did not stop, do not stop, which means when you go to work on Monday morning, means when you get up in the middle of the night to wipe that baby's bottom, means when you work, it means when you raise children, that this is God's calling. There is meaning to the mundane, there is dignity to what you do because God has said, this is what I made you for. This isn't what you do to mark time until I come back, this is you. This is what I've always had the purpose to be and it is still the purpose now as we live in exile. But then, even that they'd have been okay with. Form your little community, wall it off, live for yourselves, just try to make it by. But then he says, verse 7, seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon, the city to which I have called you. This is the mind-bending part for them of the passage. Remember what it had meant for them to be conquered by Babylon? Remember what they'd seen? Remember what they'd felt? They hated Babylon. They hated living there. They hated the people who ruled it. They hated everything about it. They wanted nothing more to go home. And God says, seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. Remember how hard this would have been for them. What does it mean, the peace? Peace is not just the absence of conflict in the Bible. It's the Hebrew word shalom. It's what in Arabic is salam. Peace, biblically, is a completely whole-ordered, wonderful functioning of the world. It means the flourishing in culture, the flourishing in economics, the flourishing in business, the flourishing in justice, the flourishing of a society in every possible way a society can flourish. And God tells them, seek peace that for Babylon, the city you hate, the city that scorns you, the city that cannot stand anything you are. Remember how hard that would have been for them. The Babylonians were their slave masters. 
You know, Jesus said, love your enemies. That wasn't an entirely new concept. He didn't get that from nowhere. God calls them to live and seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. God is calling us to seek the prosperity of the world in which we live in exile, to seek the flourishing of Kennesaw or Marietta or Atlanta. He is calling you, he is calling me not to wall ourselves off, not to develop this anti-culture, unengaged, just getting, and by the way, that's hard enough just to get your own life done, right, and raise your kids. So much more if he then says, no, now get in there and lay your life down for your city, for your culture, for your world. But that's what he asks of us, to seek the good of our city, the peace and prosperity, the shalom, the flourishing. How could we do that? What would it look like to seek the peace and prosperity of Kennesaw? To seek the peace and prosperity of Marietta? To seek the peace and prosperity of Atlanta? Well, three things, all from this passage. First, invest, verse 5. Build houses, settle down. He says, take a buyer mentality towards the place you're living in, not a renter mentality. Let me try to explain what I mean. I, moving to Atlanta last year, bought the first house I've ever owned. Until then, I spent 20 years flushing rent money down the toilet because I lived in an area where it was not possible for a pastor to buy a house. I think I'm a pretty responsible guy. I tried to take good care of places I rented. I tried to return them better than I got them to the landlord that I rented them from. But did I care about how the schools went? No, I didn't even have kids. Did I care about whether I got the roof put back on right? Did I care about making vast improvements in the culture of the place I lived? Well, no, because you knew, why make the investment? In a year from now, they're going to kick me out and I'm going to have to go find a new place to rent. If you have a renter mentality, you don't invest. Now I bought a house. Do you think I care about the HOA? Do you think I care about the quality of the schools? Do you think I care about the quality of the common spaces? Do you think I care about the flourishing of Marietta? Now I do. God says, build houses, settle in them, invest, lean into your city. How could you do that? Well, quit carping about the schools and go do something about it. Quit complaining about the problems. Get in there. Build influence. You know, it is remarkably hard to influence and create the peace and prosperity of your city if you're on the margin. This is why there's such important value and calling in leading in government, in leading in business, in developing who you are. You lead in these areas not just so you can get more money, but so you can get more influence and so that influence can be God's tool to bless the city in which we work. And by the way, he says, for when it prospers, you will prosper. There's nothing wrong if this leads to you to prospering. So one, invest. Two, verse six, increase. He says, increase there, do not decrease. Now, he means very literally, physically for Israel, grow. Don't become a minority that just sort of coddles along. Become a minority that because it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, they have to pay attention to you. And for Israel, that meant have kids, have grandkids, settle in for the run here. It does mean the same thing for us, by the way. Have kids. Kids are a good thing. It seems crazy that I'd have to say that to a bunch of Christians, but statistically, I do. Hey, and I get it. We're raising up two little images of God right now, and it's hard. (laughs) But it's no harder than you were on your parents, so relax. 
the value of raising children. Even more than that, when you tell somebody who Jesus is, what are you doing? The Bible says you're making sons and daughters of Abraham. So second, increase. And then third, verse seven, pray for it. Now, when it comes down to it, you may, most of us will not be CEOs who have that influence. Some of us even wish we could and are not able to have kids. And by the way, if that's you, we understand it hurts. We pray for you. It's hard. Every one of us has a prayer. And that prayer can be for our city, not against it or not beside it, but for the flourishing and peace of where God has called us. What God is asking you to do is to seek all the good of the place to which he's called you, which may hate you for it. What God asked Israel to do in exile was to seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon, which spat at them and enslaved them and ruined them. How can you ask someone to do that? How would God go out and ask them? How could he ask even you to lean into all those people who hate you? Because that's exactly what our Lord Jesus did for us. Romans 5, while we were still sinners... Jesus died for us. And sin is just one of these underloaded concepts in the way people talk about it. People usually think about sin means, well, I didn't do it quite right. I'm a, I, I make occasional mistakes. I, I'm not as good as I ought to be. No, sin is something much deeper, much rougher. The very core of who we are really can't stand for God to be God and us have to do what he wants. The very core of our being, and you validate this every time when somebody says, I'm not sure that's Christian behavior, and you go, Arr! We validate this every time when we decide we're just going to do it our way because it's a lot more fun in our warped sense of what we think fun is. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is no window-dressing problem. Adam and Eve sinned and they were exiled from the garden. Israel sinned and they were exiled into Babylon. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. We sin and we are exiled from God's presence. And if we do not repent, when he comes back forever in literally, physically hell. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says, but it does not stop there. What's the rest of the verse? The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Your hope and my hope is because in a physical, stubbornly physical sense, Jesus lived and then he died on a cross 2,000 years ago to take away the sin of the world. And in an equally stubbornly physical sense, three days later, he rose up from the grave, ascended into heaven, and reigns right now. And that we look forward to the time when he will come back and make all things right and new. So let me just stop and ask, do you believe that? Have you received that? That is the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus died for your sins. And if that's something that you have never owned as your own, not as a cultural thing, not as I go to church every Sunday, but as I am a sinner and I need salvation in Jesus Christ and there's no other place, make today the day. Receive his grace. Receive the good news. If that's new talk to you, if that's crazy talk to you, come on up afterwards and talk. There's nothing more important than the gospel. And if you have received it, God says he loves you so much that he's not willing to leave you like you are. He loves you so much that he is determined to conform you and me into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. The very one who laid down his life for not even just a city, but a whole world that scorned what he was.
And so if he did it, in him is the power that we can do likewise. exiles of Judah were called to love Babylon even though nothing in them wanted to do it. You and I are called to love our city even though there's very little in us that would love to do it. But we can do it because Jesus loved us when there was nothing in us that loved him. May we do so in his grace. Let's pray.